It's spring 1691. After weaving through the coral reef waters encircling Bermuda, a privateer ship finally comes into port at St. George's Harbour. The captain climbs down on the docks along with his men. Many of the crew walk up from the harbour to an outdoor grog house to celebrate their successful voyage and the stash of liberated French goods. Meanwhile, the captain and his first mate prepare to offload the hall. The warm breeze carries the sour stench of seaweed mingled with the sweet aroma of salts and spices stored on the waterfront. Spots of rain break out and lightly patter on the wooden decking. Sailors about the harbour pick up their pace to avoid getting wet. But not this captain. The seasoned privateer walks slowly, unhurried. He wears a shabby blue blazer that's seen every weather in every part of the world. As he goes down the harbour, he's recognised by passers-by who briskly touch their caps and call his name in greeting. Captain Thomas Tew. Tew walks over to the grog house where his crew, deep in their cups, are celebrating. They're well on their way to getting blissfully drunk. They amuse themselves with stories spoken through clenched tobacco pipes as they watch the evening sky. They drink to their success, but are greedy for more. They begin to tell tales of great treasure ships from France and Spain. Chew enters the fray. Taking a mug from the table, he takes a deep, long draught. Clearing his throat, he tells them that if it's real treasure they want, then they're in the wrong part of the world. The laughter dies down as the sailors suddenly snap to attention. Tew goes on. Cast your eyes to Africa and beyond. To the Indian Ocean, where the Moors and Turks transport riches the likes of which you can't even imagine. That's where the real treasure is. Where riches can turn beggars into kings. Images swirl in the sailors' heads, visions of emeralds, diamonds and rubies. Spices that dance on the tongue. Richly coloured cloth, fit for royal palaces, and perfumes that can make even a sailor's stench desirable. Tew's crew are drunkenly transported to far-off lands. I hear they have magic oils that hypnotise women. I hear the Indian princesses bathe in milk and liquid gold. Tew laughs. But he knows better than to dash the dreams of desperate men. He knows the truth. He knows a sailor named William Mason had recently gone to the Red Sea, enriching each of his crewmen by 800 pounds. He expects Mason took two or three times that for himself. Captain's privilege. The more Chew thinks about it, the more it vexes him. 
he isn't going to make his fortune fighting the French. Thomas Chew gets up to leave and walks home in the fading light. He expects to meet with a Bermudan gentleman that evening. Chew suspects a new privateering proposition is waiting for him. Little does he know, this gentleman comes with a proposition that will bring Chew within reach of the vast riches of the East. Riches beyond even his imagination. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Men like Thomas Chew, or even William Mason, are not strictly speaking pirates. At least, not in the eyes of their supporters or their employers. In 1691, Europe is once again at war. In North America, they call it King William's War, where England and France tussle for control of colonies and trade routes. It's a smaller stage for a larger battle between the two empires a battle that would go on to be called the Nine Years' War. Privateers like Chew were the first line of defense for Britain and her colonies. But they're also the best way to boost the colonial coffers. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. You know, particularly when a war is happening, regular commerce is disrupted. So privateering can fill an important gap for mercantile communities, particularly in the colonies, right, which are often the worst affected by wartime disruptions. 
In terms of the cycle of war as well, and these are long wars, right? Nine years' war is a long war. As the English Navy struggles to protect the burgeoning young colonies, the colonies take matters into their own hands. Not surprisingly, this leads to a boom in privateering commissions during war. Marauders are licensed to prey on enemy shipping. But if maritime history tells us anything, privateering is often only a stepping stone to open piracy. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. As we know, when we talk about pirates, a lot of pirates are ex-privateers. But during this war, England issued numerous letters of mark, which established these ships as privateers, and they had the right and the potential to go out and attack French ships, who were the enemy, and bring them in as prizes, and that would generate income. But what happened in the colonies is a lot of colonial governors were approached by individuals, often colonists, English colonists, who wanted to get a privateering license. So this elaborate ruse developed in the colonies, and there were upwards of perhaps 40 ships during about a 10-year period, 10 to 15-year period, who got privateering licenses from colonial governors who got kickbacks. They were literally paid by these pirates-to-be. And many of these privateers weren't too fussy about their targets. As long as they brought home the prize money, it's likely their backers wouldn't ask too many questions. In the mid-17th century, the English colony of Bermuda is transitioning from a failed tobacco plantation economy to a maritime economy. Its location at the center of the rapidly growing colonial trade routes means it's the place to be for shipwrights, coopers, and sailors. But with the war going on, Bermuda's trade is crippled. More than ever, it needs hardened privateers to protect their shipping lanes and to take the war to France. In 1692, a consortium of Bermudan gentlemen hatch a plan to profit from the conflict. All they need is someone to lead their expedition. Someone pragmatic, tough, and above all, trustworthy. The man they choose is Thomas Tew. With him, they'll get half of what they expect, but more than what they bargained for. Tew is a Rhode Islander by birth, living married with two daughters before moving to Jamaica and finally Bermuda as a privateer. He is well-dressed, but rough around the edges. He's a veteran mariner and has a freebooter's habit of cursing and drinking. But with his experience and capabilities, he is the perfect candidate. He was one of these figures who had been at sea and had participated in what was a century of war. Wars with the Dutch, wars with the French, wars with the Spanish. And out of those wars, you know, you generate generations of men who have been fighting at sea aboard these privateers, right? So not necessarily sailing under the sort of Royal Navy flags, and they had become extremely adept at the kind of work and the kind of violence you would need to bring to bear to extract wealth from this activity. 
So Chu was definitely, he knew that world. There are rumors around Bermuda that Chu hasn't been afraid to cross the line into piracy in the past. Like William Mason and countless other peers, it's likely Chu acquired his skills buccaneering in the Caribbean. Either his Bermudan backers turn a blind eye to Chu's piratical past, or they select him for that very reason. I think that the people backing privateers like Chu were making very complicated political calculations. They sort of in a mediating position between actors like Chu who operating at what I guess could generously be called the very edge of legality, if not perhaps occasionally slipping over that edge, and their superiors who occupy the very center of what is a rapidly emerging global empire in London. So offering commissions, particularly by the 1690s, there had been more and more pressure emanating from imperial officials to rein in loosely worded commissions, right? This had been a trick that had been used in the past and it frustrated many imperial officials to discover that a governor in one of the colonies had issued a commission with a very sort of openly worded description of what was a legitimate target on the tacit understanding that it would enable the kinds of excesses that were lucrative, but still provide enough of a sort of a mantle of legality. The plan is to sail more than 3,000 miles to raid a French slaving outpost off the river Gambia in Gouré, West Africa. Their chief plunder would be human beings. In the early years of the transatlantic slave trade, Monopoly companies were inefficient at supplying slave labor to the rapidly growing plantation colonies. Huge profits could be made if privateers could capture and deliver enslaved people from other sources. Privateering has a long history. And by the 1690s, you found yourself in the midst of this transition where this older form, which had been extremely convenient and in some ways very cheap for the British or the English state to promote, was becoming in some ways a liability. But at the same time, it had a huge amount of facility for particularly colonial merchants to sponsor this kind of voyage because it held the promise of bringing in the kinds of commodities and wealth that they might otherwise struggle to get access to. In spring 1692, the letter of Mark comes through. Tew prepares his ship, the eight-gun, 70-ton sloop Amity. He recruits a crew of around 60 men, but they're unaware of the mission's details. By December that year, Tew sets sail from Bermuda. He is accompanied by another ship, the Amy, captained by another privateer, George Dew. Dew is another man with a checkered past. He was part of a buccaneering raid on the city of Panama in 1686. Perhaps the Bermudan financiers knew what they were doing when they paired these two captains together. But Dew and Tew have little time to get to know one another. Their journey together is cut short by disaster. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. January 1693. Tew sails somewhere on the eastern side of the Atlantic, close to Africa. There's heavy rain and tall breaker waves up ahead. The captain stands behind his navigator, whilst his first mate orders the bosun to adjust the sails. But the rain only gets heavier. Chu's crew slide on the slick deck, struggling to keep their footing as they rush to tie down cargo boxes and loose barrels. A realization dawns on Chu. The Amy, George Dew's vessel, is nowhere to be seen. The sky darkens and the winds begin to howl. The driving rain becomes blinding. Great waves lift up the ship and send it crashing down against its will. Some of the men are launched up in the air in the process. The bosun loses his grip on the sail rope and slips. The Amity lists dangerously on her side, taking on water. The crew rush to let loose the sails, leaving the canvas to flap uncontrollably against the wind. As Chew looks for a clear route out, for a moment he thinks he spots the Amy in the distance, pounded by waves, caught in the murderous grip of the ocean. Dew is on his own, is every man for himself. All they can do is ride out the storm. It's a waiting game, a praying game. The privateers need a miracle. Hours later, the waves subside and the Amity makes it out of the storm with minor damage. But George Dew is nowhere to be seen. Some miles away, the Amy is adrift. Her topmast lies in ruin while the crew are paralyzed. Dew's ship eventually limps to Saldana Bay in southwest Africa where he is greeted by another unwelcome surprise. The Dutch. The privateers are arrested for piracy and put on trial. If you do not find some way to get back to an English court, then your English commission is very unlikely to protect you, even if you have stayed strictly within the provisions inside it. Outside of situations where you are engaged in attacking the shipping of explicitly an imperial enemy, so again, right, this was understood by the people issuing the commissions. It was understood by the pirate or privateer captains who were carrying those commissions. 
It was understood by the crews of those vessels, and it was understood by all of the other sort of imperial stakeholders in the Atlantic that this was an, an ambiguous, ambivalent zone of operation, and it was very possible if you were captured by the wrong people at the wrong time, even if you hadn't necessarily done anything that was illegal from the perspective of the issuing state that you had committed piracy. On this occasion, the evidence isn't enough to convict George Dew. He's lucky to get away. For now, no piracy has been committed. But that's about to change for Thomas Chew and the Amity. It's a few days later. Chew's ship has been quiet since the storm. The crew feels defeated. Even if Chew's men don't know the mission details, they do know that if two ships leave port together, it means it's a two-ship job. With the Amy lost, they fear the mission is over before it's begun. And with it, their chances of getting paid. Inside his cabin, Thomas Chu reviews his options. It's morning. Any minute, his crew will gather on deck. They will look to him for direction, for hope and for their fortunes. Chew dusts off his charts and maps and lays them out on the table. He puts down the tip of his finger on their location, just off the northwest coast of Africa. He plots his route. Taking his finger, he sweeps past Cape Verde towards the River Gambia. From the deck, Sailors preparing for the day can be heard. In Chu's cabin, a shaft of shimmering daylight shines from the arched window in the stern. It illuminates the map as he traces the wind routes and small passages. Chu follows the light, running his finger down the coast of Africa, under the Cape of Good Hope and north past Madagascar to the Red Sea. Of course, the stories come flooding back. Mughal gold, Arabian spices, all the treasures of the Orient. With George Dew out of the picture, Dew has the chance to turn fantasy into reality. He lays out the new path. The pirate round from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean and Red Seas and back to America. The tide is about to turn, and with it, he hopes, the Amity's fortunes. Tew leaves his quarters and bursts onto the deck, calling for his crew's attention. He comes clean about the original mission. It's not worth it. To attack a French outpost is risky, even if they had two ships. It could be well defended, and there may be no treasure at the end of it. It's high risk and low reward. But Chew has another idea. The crew listen in with magnetized attention, and like a savvy entrepreneur, their captain pitches them a deal of a lifetime. Chew's plan will take them through the Indian Ocean to the mouth of the Red Sea, where Arab and Mughal ships transport ivory and spices, as well as gold and precious stones. Here, at the edge of the world, these treasure ships roam like a flock of unsuspecting sheep, hardly defended, 
and unlikely to fight back. Most importantly, the men can claim a stake in the actual plunder. Chu convinces his men this is a venture that's actually worth the risks. Although the risks can't be understated. To get to the Red Seas, Chu must first sail around the Cape of Good Hope, otherwise known as the Cape of Storms. The Cape is where the legend of the Flying Dutchman was born, the ghost ship of doomed mariners cursed to sail at sea for eternity. Storms and superstitions aside, should they survive the journey, there are no English ports and few safe harbours. Once you leave Madagascar and begin travelling out into the Indian Ocean, you are entering a much more dangerous zone. There are French ports and there's Reunion, but you are likely to run into and could very well find yourself in a situation where if your ship becomes disabled, if you are captured by the French, if you run into any kind of issues out there, it's not particularly easy to find a place to set ashore. So they are taking a big risk. But beyond the Cape, the open ocean, and threat of French vessels, Muslim treasure ships await. Having told his crew everything, Tu awaits their response. It's unanimous approval. One member loudly proclaims, a gold chain or a wooden leg will stand by you. English colonists who wanted to get a privateering license ostensibly to go out and attack French ships. But in reality, what they wanted to do is sail around Cape Horn, go into the Indian Ocean, attack Mughal ships, and come back with riches of the Far East. And the reason a privateering license was so coveted is that if they were stopped along the way, they would sort of have proof because there were French ships in the Indian Ocean, they would have some ostensible proof that they were in fact privateers and they were engaged in a legal military operation, but it really was just a cover. In Chu's case, you know, uh, in theory, he's supposed to be out there promoting England's interests in its long conflict with France. In reality, for a lot of these privateers, that's, that's a, a happy side effect of securing what their primary interest is, which is finding some sort of rich prize. And we know that this was a common issue on privateering voyages, right? The longer things go on, the more pressure begins to build because everyone is operating on this no plunder, no pay principle. Illegal as it may be, Chu suspects that his backers in Bermuda will not object to his plan, or at least, they won't object to the outcome. The colonies were traditionally starved of not only currency, but also East Indian goods, which they really wanted, because the colonies were viewed by England and used by England as a source of raw materials. And the colonists felt neglected and they felt that they weren't an equal partner in the English economy. And all of the money and goods that were brought back from the Indian Ocean by these pirates helped to fill a void in the colonies. The privateers, or rather pirates, as many would now see it, adjust their course for the Red Seas. They sail around the Cape of Good Hope and up past Madagascar, where they likely find a quiet harbor 
to stop and resupply. From there, they travel north to the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, the Gateway of Tears in Arabic, which lies between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. It's where all ships going to and from the Red Sea must pass. And as its name suggests, it's where a great many tears will soon be shed. It's summer 1693, and frustration builds amongst the crew. It's been months since Chew's adventure-stirring speech. The effects have worn off, and morale is at rock bottom. It's broiling hot near the Arabian Peninsula. The men likely endure heat stroke as their pale skins burn. Their supplies are low. Their mental state is fragile. The algae-lined barrels of stagnant water are barely drinkable, especially since they run out of rum to hide the taste. The ocean feels like an inescapable void. The men grow weak, tormented by the endless miles of undrinkable water that surround them. They constantly scan the horizon for sails. The crew of the Amity will be lucky to get a wooden leg, let alone a gold chain. Thomas Chew is close to abandoning the plan for the sake of their sanity. But his gut tells him to wait just a little longer. As summer tips into autumn, the crew aboard the Amity finally catch a break. A richly laden Indian Ganja Dao is spotted sailing en route to an Ottoman port. Chu recognizes the trade ship by the distinctive trefoil ornament carved into the ship's prow. He also notes the waterline. She moves slowly, sitting deep in the water. She's weighed down by her cargo. Visions of treasure light up in the pirate's imagination. They burst into action, a combination of sun and exhaustion driving them into a frenzy. Some of the pirates take their shirts off and pour ocean water on their chest to cool off, to scare their victims, and to hype themselves for battle. The Amity closes in. Chew scans the Mughal ship. He sees the sun glinting off the armor and blades of the soldiers lining up on the deck. Not quite the unsuspecting sheep he had anticipated. Well, there's no turning back now. Chew rallies and goes about his men. He hands out guns and swords, reminding them that the enemy is far more terrified of them. The pirates simply have to hold their ground and appear like devils. With the two vessels almost abreast, Chew orders his men to line up as the Amity glides side by side with the Ganja. Looking across the water, the crew of the Indian ship line up in formation. Only now do the pirates know what they're up against. 300 soldiers, braced for battle, brandishing muskets, spears, and scimitars. It's more than five times the men on board the Amity. Any doubts or fears that might creep into the pirates' ranks are quickly pushed aside. Chu leads by example. Keeping his feet firmly planted, he stands firm, 
arm to the teeth and lets out an almighty blood-curdling war cry. The deranged pirate crew follow suit. One can only imagine what the mercenary soldiers aboard the Dower make of it. Because after a moment's hesitation, the Indian soldiers lay down their weapons and surrender. The battle is over before it begins. Pirates didn't want to engage in violence if they could avoid it. If their intended target surrendered, that was the ideal for pirates because no matter who they were fighting against, there was always a potential that they themselves would be injured or killed. And no thief or pirate wants to put themselves in mortal danger if they can avoid it and still come away with what they were searching for, which was the treasure and the goods that were on board those ships. The pirates quickly flood aboard the captured vessel, almost as desperate for provisions as they are for riches. Meanwhile, Chu heads for the captain's cabin. The room is clouded by blue-tinged smoke and the sweet smell of burnt tobacco emanating from hooker pipes. The captain is visible through the fog, calmly standing behind his desk, dressed in rich-looking robes. Chu looks around. It's clear these quarters are far grander than Chu's own small cabin. The room is cluttered with mosaic ottoman lamps and fruit bowls of burnished silver, sitting upon carved ornate tables with inlays of ivory. Chu, conscious of his own shabby appearance, slowly approaches his well-groomed counterpart. His gaze settles on the Indian captain's heavy gold necklace. Chu draws his cutlass. The blade hovers near the merchant's throat. The pirate delicately lifts the golden chain with his blade and snatches it clean off. No response, not a shudder. The Indian captain isn't fearful, but he does want to avoid violence. Chu, leaning closer, now admires the jewel-encrusted dagger poking out of the captain's belt. Without the means of translation, Chu points his finger. Feeling the weight of the ornamental blade in his hands, Chu can't help but smile. The Indian Ocean and the Red Sea provided wonderful grounds from the pirates' perspective for hunting. And that's because there was a lot of treasure that was afloat during the late 1600s because the Mughal Empire, which is essentially parts of the Indian subcontinent, a Muslim power, sent many, many ships, trading ships, and ships going on annual pilgrimages, the Hajj, to Mecca and Jeddah and other ports in the Red Sea. And those trading ships had a lot of valuables on board, not just money, but valuable jewels and silks and other items. And then these voyages that were taken for the Hajj had sometimes upwards of a thousand religious pilgrims arrayed in their best finery, taking their best jewels as well as money to perform their religious devotion. The treasure inside the Indian Ganja is worth a hundred thousand pounds in gold and silver, 
and that's before counting materials like ivory, spices, and bales of silk. Each pirate gets a share of somewhere between 1,200 and 3,000 pounds, or 50,000 and 100,000 pounds today. Chu keeps 8,000 pounds for himself, which would now be valued at around 1.6 million pounds. There's so much cargo, some of the gunpowder is thrown overboard after it overflows in the pirates' stores. It's a sweet victory. The pirates sail away as different men. They sail away as legends. It would take a lifetime or more of plundering before they might otherwise collect booty like this. Most marauders will never even live to imagine it. Not even the great buccaneers like Henry Morgan, who laid waste to Spanish treasure cities like Panama, brought home wealth like this. Simply put, they've captured possibly the greatest single haul any pirate has ever taken. And Tew and his crew have done it in their first attempt in the Red Sea. Bathing in the glow of success, the crew start to think of home. They need to rest and repair before the perilous voyage back to the Americas. There's only one place to go on this side of the world, to Madagascar. It's October 19th, 1693. Off the northeast coast of Madagascar, the pirates sail into the thriving Euro-Malagasy trading post on the small island called Saint Marie. The skyline is dominated by waving palm fronds, and the forests are stocked with strange, colorful birds and exotic creatures whose names are unknown to them. A considerable fortification with dozens of guns is built in the center. It is protected by a mix of armed Malagasy locals and European sailors. But this is one port that pirates need not fear. The countless wrecks of looted ships indicates the real nature of the place. Thomas Tew disembarks the Amity and is heartily welcomed by a merchant named Adam Baldridge, founder of this pirate outpost. For the time being, the pirates rest. The men roast beef they bought from Baldridge on open fires. They soak in St. Marie's white beaches and enjoy the imported beer and rum. Meanwhile, Tew is a man reinvented. Throwing off his faded blue frock coat, he now sports a new one of fine red velvet, trimmed with silver lace, fastened with opalescent pearl buttons. On his chest rests the polished gold chain, and on his belt sits the ruby-encrusted blade. He draws looks of admiration wherever he goes. He's famous. But behind this flashy facade, Tew is secretly anxious about the reception waiting for him back at home. Back in the sort of early 17th century, when you could effectively, as long as you stayed out of the hands of your enemies, pretty safely engage in widespread violence and plunder at sea, and you might return home and be fated as a hero. This is really the period where it starts to become an ambiguous thing. You might get away with it, you might not. However vague his commission was, what Tew has done was open piracy. He could lose everything just as quickly as it was gained. While he celebrates his great haul with his men, these worries gnaw at the back of his mind. 
William Mason got away with it. But Mason's Hall was nothing like their own. The stakes are higher. Would he have to go into hiding? Change his identity? Or could he bribe his way out? And how much of his plunder would he have to part with? Only one way to find out, Tew thinks to himself. Anybody can get rich. The hard part is keeping it. Next week on Real Pirates. The Amity sails back to America, and all aboard are anxious about how they'll be received. Returning with a stash of Mughal gold and Arabian riches is not likely to go unnoticed. Whilst some would see them hang, others sense the opportunity of a lifetime. The question is, can Thomas Tew convert his success into status, and in doing so, join the ranks of the colonial elite? Or will the siren call of piracy lure him back to the sea? Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by Oman Khalid, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 